Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week started off feeling like deja vu in Turkey. Turkish stocks, bonds, and the lira tumbling in one of the sharpest sell-offs in years. That coming on the hills of President Erdogan removing the country's central bank governor after only four months on the job. The new governor is a fan of lower rates like Erdogan and marks the country's fourth central banker in less than two years. So we spoke about what comes next with Jason Tuvey, a senior emerging markets economist at Capital Economics. And we started by asking Jason what long-term impact this ongoing uncertainty will have on Turkey's economy and financial markets. Yeah, I mean, the moves today were pretty incredible, to be honest. Um, and I mean, under the previous governor, Nasi Akbar, there were signs that maybe Turkey was turning a corner. Um, maybe this, it looked like this policy shift that we'd seen since November was uh, the real deal. Um, but clearly, President Erdogan didn't give up his unorthodox theories for, for too long um, and abruptly fired uh, Mr. Agbao. Um, so yeah, we're now on to another central bank governor. It seems someone who is more aligned with what President Erdogan wants. Um, I mean, the result is likely to be uh, some effort at some point in the near future to bring rates down again. Um, but that's only going to make Turkey's inflation problem much worse. Yeah. Um, and that probably means continued weakness uh, in, in the lira going forward. I mean, you saw serious knock-on effects. Sort of globally speaking, we saw Spanish banks take a massive hit. Those most exposed to Turkish loans in Europe in particular, still that fine line can be drawn between the two. Talk to us about the Turkish banking sector and how much that is a key concern for you. Yeah, I think the Turkish banking sector is the key area of vulnerability in Turkey's economy. Um, now, there are some concerns about the effects of the lira in terms of uh, mismatches on banks' balance sheets. Um, they're not those concerns aren't actually as big as they were, say, you know, back in last summer. Um, but the concern that's been there throughout the past few years has been the fact that banks have very large uh, external debts, and these have to be re repaid uh, or rolled over quite regularly. So these amount to about 12.5% of GDP. And um, to put that into context, uh, banks. Um, uh, their liquid assets at the central bank, which they use to repay these uh, these debts during periods of stress, these these assets are very very low. Um, and what's more, the central bank has heavily depleted its foreign exchange reserves, so it can't step in either if if banks do run into trouble. Um, so I think we will see the lira fall today. CDS premium jumped all at once, spreads wide and sharply. I think it's the banking sector where we really need to keep a close eye on, on the coming, over the coming days and weeks. So what, in terms of uh, the future of the central bank going forward, 
And what is uh, what are we likely to see in terms of uh, policy, both on rates policy, but also, as you mentioned, the sort of like domestic policy to uh, ensure, uh, you know, holding Vlera? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think in terms of rates, it seems Erdogan's desire clearly is to bring rates down. He has been an advocate uh, opponent of high interest rates. So, so that's the desire. Um, getting there, given the very poor balance of payments position, I think it is going to be very difficult. Um, in terms of trying to get uh, people to hold lira, I think inevitably there will have to be some sort of capital controls put in place Maybe not in the very immediate future, but I think that's the road that Turkey is heading, heading down in the long run. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the global ramifications of this? I mean, I talked about how European banks got dragged lower, but mm. as we do go into day two to digest this, who else gets hurt? Yes, good question. Actually, I think, um, I think the risks are really contained to Turkey. This is such an uh, idiosyncratic uh, thing going on that... Um, I think we've seen periods before, say, following the currency crisis in 2018, where there were some hits hit to, say, other EM currencies due to uh, a period of risk off sentiment. But I think we've seen today, actually, the moves in EM currencies, have, there's barely been any. I mean, the RAND and the Lira were down yeah. 1%. Uh, sorry, the RAND and the Mexican peso were down about 1% against the dollar earlier in the day, but they quickly snapped back. Um, I think investors are taking this as this is purely a Turkey story. What do you watch for, though, in terms of identifying vulnerabilities? So right now it's purely a uh, Turkey story. But from a fundamental standpoint, and again, we do seem to be in this pretty broad upswing in markets. And despite the rates, EM seems to be doing fine. But what are the radar signs you look for of when uh, EMs uh, perhaps get into trouble? Yeah, I mean... No, I say Turkey is very particular here. I think um, the external position um, in particular, if you look at the like, current account deficit, is, is really large, got large external debts, low FX reserves. Um, Turkey on, on those measures are sort of out on a league on, of, of its own. Um, but th we would be looking at similar things for, for other countries to try and assess vulnerabilities. Um, I think, like you mentioned, um, any specific links to Turkey, we would be looking for such as, like you say, the Spanish banking mm. sector. Um, but beyond that, I, I think um, we, I think most of the vulnerabilities in EMs at the moment are quite domestic driven. Uh, so in Brazil, with Bolsonaro and the virus developments and what's happening with the public finances there. Similarly, in South Africa, with public finances there. Um, I think it's very difficult at the moment to draw specific EM mm. themes beyond what we're seeing inside the US Treasury market and any ramifications there. Now, this week, there's been plenty of discussion about the I word as the debate over inflation rages on. Bloomberg opinion columnist Noah Smith came on to talk about why your local price changes aren't inflation and why some people in the Bay Area may think inflation is high even when it's not. We started with the empirical side of the debate and asked Noah if we should be worried about what we're seeing with producer price levels and whether they'll feed through to consumers. Will it feed through? Probably yes. I mean, you know, companies try to pass on increased costs to their consumers. Uh, will it lead to something dramatic? I don't think we know yet. I think if that would be like a, a multi-month, multi-quarter you know, multi-point rise in inflation. At that point, we start to freak out and say, okay, what the heck is going on here? Uh, but we're just not there yet. 
Not there yet. You've got a great piece out today, Noah, talking about Lucas Island's model. I mean, what, in what perspective? What, who is measuring inflation? Mm. How are they measuring it? And, and are we all measuring it in the same ways? Right. So that was about Lucas Island's model was this old theory about how everybody tried to infer inflation from how much they saw their local prices go up. And I think that a lot of people still do this. You, you know, I have some friends living in the Bay Area who say, oh, my God, a house is this expensive. Rent is this expensive. Uh, you know, uh, restaurants are this expensive. We must have a lot of hidden inflation. But in fact, uh, that's just local. That's because a bunch of rich people moved to the Bay Area. And if you go to, you know, Cleveland or wherever, that's just not happening. And so you have to to look at the national level. So the other thing that a lot of people in the Bay Area, and I have to say, it seems like this year, people in the Bay Area all started getting opinions on inflation. Another thing that they say a lot is that we should talk about like asset inflation, that for somehow stocks and the cost of art or the cost of an NFT is going up a lot, and therefore that has something to do with inflation. Why is this sort of logically not something that we should think about as inflation the way the Fed thinks about it? Right. So basically, inflation is meant to be kind of, uh, you know, the, a change in the value of the currency. So the currency, you know, the actual U.S. dollar is worth less relative to all the useful things you might want to buy, such as, you know, uh, bread and, uh, you know, back massages or whatever you want to buy. I guess not in the pandemic. <laughs> but um, but so so the thing is that a stock isn't actually something useful that you want to buy because no one actually needs a share of Apple. They just, you know, Apple shares are just sort of a claim on the useful stuff that's out there. So because Apple shares don't have intrinsic value, we don't want to include them in inflation. That doesn't mean that asset price changes aren't important. It just means that that's not what we think of when we think about inflation. So what are economists, Jay Powell, up there today not worrying about inflation? He, obviously desperate to see it go above that 2% level for him. What are economists seeing inflation at and what are they using to measure as the right thing from your perspective? Well, I mean, um, you know, the, all the measures of inflation, you know, the CPI, the GDP deflator, the uh, producer price indices, um, PCE, and even the Billion Price Project by MIT, these all are very highly correlated. Over the long term, there can mm. be some divergence. So we argue about which one we should use when we're measuring how much stuff has changed since like 1980. But if we're talking about how much stuff changed this month, these these are all pretty much correlated and they're all sort of measuring, you know, the same stuff. And um, and of course, you know, the Fed is going to be looking at them all, but they're all saying the same thing. So, Noah, something else that you wrote about today on your newsletter, it's like the return of macro wars, this idea of different ideological camps having a lot of spirited debates. People like Larry Summers warning of overheating, the MMT types uh, much less concerned about it. A lot of it comes down to this question of, do we even have good models for reliably anticipating mm -hmm. inflation? And it feels like the Fed is sort of like, we actually really don't know when we're going to get inflation, so we'll just wait till we see it. How well, in your view, have the traditional approaches held up? And do we just have to like, do we just have to junk the old ideas of where we think we know what causes inflation? I would say that. Um macro models of the kind that academics use and the kind that they try to get the Fed to use have been completely useless in predicting inflation. Um, just just completely useless. And that at this point, everyone is just relying on kind of heuristics and rules and kind of Keynesian ideas that people learned in Econ 101, uh, you know, either that. And at the level of the public discussion, it's even less. It's just people, you know, shouting like MMT memes and stuff. But then um, 
But I would say that in terms of people at the Fed, they're using these simple heuristics and rules because academic theories, there's no help. In what is when inflation, you actually see it? So, yes, hmm. you're going to have to be in the PCE data, but is it going to come down to wage inflation that you eventually have to see if we're going to see anything sustained? And at what point does that happen apart from in the Bay Area? Maybe, maybe not. So an interesting thing about uh, wages is that uh, when you have moderate inflation, you know, workers are able to bargain for raises like cost of living raises. But then when inflation gets really high and variable, you know, where it gets up to like, you know, eight or 10 percent, but then also bounces around, workers have a much harder time, you know, anticipating how much inflation will be and then bargaining to keep up with that. And so therefore wages, you know, often you know, at least in the 70s, you know, wages fell behind during inflation, which doesn't happen in your textbooks, but kind of happens in real life. And so, um, you know, they're not counted in the CPI. Maybe there's some arguments about that they should be. But the fact is that it's not wages that's going to show us. It's just, you know, consumer prices, producer prices and stuff like that. So from your perspective, just to tie it up in a bow, do you think we've got inflation or not? It's too early to tell you know, give it give it a few months. These things bounce around a lot. It could be gone next month. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week, we also got a major announcement from Intel, the company's new CEO, Pat Gelsinger, unveiling an ambitious bid to regain its manufacturing lead by spending billions of dollars on new factories and creating a foundry business that will make chips for other companies. Now, this was not the plan Wall Street had been expecting. Many thought Intel would go with an ultra-light asset model, designing chips and outsourcing being the capital-intensive manufacturing. We spoke about it with Willie Shi, professor of management practice at Harvard Business School and an expert in manufacturing and product development. We started by asking Professor Shi just how difficult this plan is actually going to be for Intel to execute. Well, uh, $20 billion, that's uh, a start. Okay, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it took years for them to fall behind. Right. Okay, and this is a tough problem. This is tough technology. Okay, so it's a start, but clearly Pat Gelsinger has put down a marker and saying we're climbing back into the ring here and we're going to go after leadership again. So, you know, I, I think that's encouraging. What about where they're doing it in terms of... Is it right we saw TSMC and those in Asia fall? Is it right to be focusing so much on what's happening in Arizona, for example, over in Europe as well? Well, uh, I think the shortages that we're seeing, particularly in automotive, but increasingly in other sectors as well, has called attention to kind of the fragility of supply chains, the vulnerability, the uh, kind of excessive dependence on a couple of suppliers, foundries in Taiwan, okay? Uh, now, so you see a lot of that tension in Washington about how we need to have more of that supply chain domestically. Now, uh, it's going to take a while to rebuild that. In Intel is proposing to go into the foundry business. Uh, I, I mean, and they're making a big bet on that. 
it's going to take them a while to develop that mo model. Now, uh, the good thing is they're starting with two new fabs that are going to be dedicated to the foundry business. And what Pat Gelsinger has said is they're going to do industry standard tools. They're going to use industry standard uh, IP blocks. Those are the chunks of circuits that you use uh, to develop those chips. Right. So it's, it's going to be more aligned with the model that other customers who go to the Taiwanese foundries like TSMC are mm. used to doing. It's not a model that Intel is used to doing, though. So, you know, $20 billion, it's a lot, but even, you know, back in January, TSMC announced it was going to spend another $28 billion on CapEx. So they're kind of table stakes for these industries at these players to spend a ton of money. When I asked you, is this going to work? You're like, well, it's a start. What's it going to take beyond this initial commitment of an investment for them to reverse what, as you said, was like a, a multi-year process of falling behind? Well, you know, what they have to do is they have to uh, really push the frontiers. Now, what Pat Gelsinger has said is they're going to use, they're going to commit to deep UV. They've been a little behind on that, right? And that, that, by the way, is one of the reasons for the $20 billion price tag, because when you look at one of these ASML deep UV uh, machines, you know, each machine is pushing $150 million. And in a fab mm. the size that Intel is going to uh, propose to build, they're, they're, they might need 20 of them. Okay, so that's like having a fleet of these, you know, 100 million plus machines in there. Okay, now what they need to do is they need to get the processes up and they need to get volume through there, right? Because it's through volume. Uh, that's how you perfect your processes. That's how you do your learning. That's how you drive your costs down. Okay, and uh, TSMC is very good at that. Of course, they've spent 35 years developing that skill. Intel knows how to do that with their microprocessors, uh, but they've you know had some troubles with advanced processes, right? So they'll they'll uh, they'll have to work at it, and it's going to be multiple years. It's not something. Uh, that we'll be able to look two quarters, three mm. quarters, or even two years out and say, oh, yeah. okay, they're going to solve this problem. It's going to be a steady progress, and they're just going to have to take risks, and they're going to have to make investments. They're going to have to get customers uh, to buy that output uh, so yeah. that they can keep driving volume and learning. And almost that exact thing that it's not going to be solved in a couple of quarters that they're going to have to keep on reinvesting can be said exactly the same for the shortage in chips that we're seeing at the moment. And just take a listen to what Pat Gelsinger had to say about that. COVID caused everybody to step back a bit from capacity and build out and the supply chain the industry, and it induced a radical increase in demand. So you have supply chains uh, scaling back a bit and demand scaling up radically. Wow. And now we're in a position that there's a meaningful shortage. And, you know, it's going to be a couple of years until that's fully resolved. Well, your perspective on, on that global shortage that we're seeing at the moment and how that gets resolved. Hmm. Yeah, well, there, there are a lot of interesting facets to this shortage, okay? And we're feeling it in automotive. But I will remind everybody that, you know, at the beginning of 2020, uh, the outlook for the global automobile market, including China in particular, was slightly down from, uh, from 2019. And that was before COVID hit, right? So then COVID hit and sales fall off a cliff. Uh, and so if you're an automaker, then you're saying, how am I going to survive? How am I going to... I'm going to shepherd cash and so on. So they pulled back orders. Now, what the pandemic did is it created huge demand for things like notebook computers, flat panel displays, 
consumer electronics, new gaming consoles. We had a new generations of gaming consoles come out. Okay, and you know, to the extent the capacity is fungible, they soaked up a lot of the capacity. So meanwhile, the auto guys, and this started to become visible late last fall, November, it was already starting to become visible. The lead times for getting your orders into the foundries started extending out. Now, the U.S. made it worse by sanctioning Huawei and sanctioning SMIC. So Huawei put in a lot of orders for chips uh, last summer in, in Taiwan, and that absorbed a lot of capacity, right? So it, it was... Uh, it was a combination of factors. Now, to get through this uh, shortfall, now uh, it's going to take it's going to take a good six months to a year wow. before we really start seeing a lot of relief on that. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way, from design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And the week ended with yet another big tech hearing on Capitol Hill. Three prominent Silicon Valley CEOs, Sundar Pichai of Google, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and Jack Dorsey of Twitter facing questions from House lawmakers over disinformation on their platforms, particularly in reference to the January insurrection at the Capitol, much of which was organized online. We've gotten used to these hearings, and they often are not very enlightening or market-moving. But we caught up with Sridhar Ramaswamy, a former senior VP at Google, where he ran their ad business for 15 years, to ask whether there will ever be a meaningful policy turn that will put these companies' business models under threat. Well, I think we need to start with just having more information. Part of what is disappointing about today, and honestly about the last three months, is we don't know that much more than what we knew on January 6th. Think about it, Joe. If uh, January 6th had been an airline accident, the NTSB would have been all over the place. We would have actual data about what actually happened. Um, while with the tech platforms, we don't really know how good they were at, say, removing even illegal content. We're not even talk talking about things like misinformation. So I just think we need to be much better educated. And, and, you know, our government needs to set up something like the NTSB to oversee this stuff. If we can oversee airlines, why not oversee social media? Only then will we have meaningful change. Otherwise, you know, we sort of have this political theater that doesn't really go anywhere. Important you say that, of course, as you were overseeing Google's advertising and commerce products that ended up being a $100 billion revenue run rate when you were there, Sridhar. And I'm interested, you've gone on to, of course, be a CEO of an ad-free personal consumer-facing search service instead. Your view, therefore, on, on really the regulatory impact of what you hope to come out of this, do you want to see more regulation? You're just saying it's an oversight board or is there something more deeply that needs to be changed within Section 230? I'm just saying that oversight, more information, will just let us be a lot more educated about what kind of mm. changes to things like Section 230 uh, are reasonable to make. Uh, I've uh, argued, for example, that we need to separate things out. We need to separate out what I call organic content, content that, say, you or Joe share with your followers on Twitter, versus stuff that's algorithmically amplified by the platforms. The latter, in my opinion, should be held to a much higher standard. 
And the one thing that we never talk about is all platforms have the option of delaying content if they're unsure about mm. its nature. Um, so these are things that they could be doing. Of course, what I'm doing is completely you know, different from any of the business models that are out there. Uh, Neva is an ads-free private search engine because we think having you as both the user and customer will just lead to a better experience over time. So, you know, on that, you talk about the, the distinction that you established between more organic uh, sharing and sort of more algorithmic uh, things designed to go viral. I mean, people post a lot of nonsense on uh, different social media platforms, and they often don't do it as part of some coordinated campaign. They just tell their friends some misinformation that they heard about vaccines or something that they heard about voting machines or something like that. It doesn't mean that they like got it from on top or someone was telling them to do that. Um, should, the, uh, should the platforms think about uh, throttling that, which is just me talking to you, except it's um, you know, completely made up? It's one of the tools that they have to consider. If it is you know, our proverbial crazy drunken uncle talking to two of his friends, you know, maybe right. nothing happens to that. If on the other hand, if it is a powerful politician with a megaphone of 50 million people, their words are just completely different. I think uh, holding that to a higher standard is fine. Guidelines from Congress, guidelines from regulators are going to help. But I think we do need to understand that those two just are not the same. What you and I might say in the confines of our home to a couple of friends is completely different from what somebody says to 100 million people. Shuda, how far can AI go at the moment as it stands? Because there's been an awful lot, you hear a lot from Facebook, is the amount of people they have working on this, human eyeballs, but also how they want artificial intelligence to really be able to pick out the most damaging misinformation, take it offline as quickly as possible. How good is the AI getting? How quickly can it be enforced, do you think? I've dealt with some of the hardest problem at scale when I was running ads. AI is not a magic answer to all solutions. Um, and you run into the kind of constraints that Joe is talking about, which is if you're super accurate at identifying what you think is illegal, you're going to sweep up a bunch of pretty regular content along with it. This is why I'm saying we need more data. We need to know things like if illegal content is shared on such and such a platform, they can act on it within two minutes. Are they going to delay it for 20 minutes while actual people look at this? Um, at the end of the day, we need to care about more than effort. We need to have a shared understanding of the actual things that happen, of actual results. So in my mind, just saying we have 10,000 people or 20,000 people doesn't let you or me know, are they really good at solving this problem? AI is mm -hmm. part of the answer, but AI has more constraints than people really want to talk about. As an investor, thinking about the competitive landscape for tech, how do you think about the difficulty in funding companies that theoretically uh, compete with these uh, gigantic firms? How, how much does that enter into your competition? And do you think that there is a competitive marketplace for the uh, sort of consumer or other internet things that, uh, that interest you? It's pretty hard. I think, uh, you know, investors understand that going head to head against very large companies is very problematic. On the other hand, uh, enterprise investing, there is, a, uh, there is a lot of that going on. FinTech investing, there's a lot of that going on. In fact, I would say that Neva is one of the few pure consumer companies mm. that have been funded by VCs in the recent past. Um, and that's because you know, there is fear that going head to head against trillion dollar companies is not a smart way to make money.
So with your CEO hat on, your mm -hmm. co-founder hat on of Neva and, and being in that competitive space to a certain degree, Shuda, what is the data that you say you want to see? You say you need more data to really understand what sort of a job, how good a job that is they're doing. What data could you get from these companies? Well, when I, when I speak about social media and data, I'm speaking about it more as what does the public need or what does the Congress need in order to reach better mm -hmm. decisions. Um, and to me, as I said, it's, uh, it's things like how quickly is objectionable content brought down? Uh, how much of that content is subject to review before it loses? What's the impact of, as I said, algorithmic amplification on how much objectionable content gets shared? Um, within the context of Neva, we solve a different problem with a different set of uh, principles. Um, so, you know, this kind of data is less of in the context of my being the CEO of yeah. Neva. Shida, but on that note, you're saying, would they have gladly give that data, do you think? How would they measure it? In place to be able to measure those sorts of bits of data that you're saying that Facebook could give to the body politic? Every team that works on objectionable content has to grade itself internally in terms of how good a job they're doing. The metrics that I am talking about how quickly is objectionable content identified? How much of it is sent for human review? How good are the human raters? These are all things. Yes, the methodology will be different from company to company, um, but they have the data. Um, but there needs to be an amount of pressure uh, to have this data come out in the open so we can actually make better decisions about what's, like, what's the long term of Section 230, what provision do we change, how good a job really are we doing? And is that something that you think um, the industry should be more forthcoming with unilaterally on that? Or is that something that a regulator or perhaps a legal act could, uh, could enforce so that we could actually, as you say, get some answers to these questions? Given the past four years, we've been talking about this since the 2016 election, right? Um, I would actually say that it's going to take some kind of an act of regulation, perhaps the FTC stepping up to do the job. I think it's going to require uh, a certain amount of pressure before more of this information is, uh, is, is available freely. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.